The following presentation was recorded at the Newbury Buddhist Monastery, Victoria, Australia. Please visit our website at nbm.org.au. So, welcome to everybody, also to the people who are watching this later on YouTube without the chanting in the beginning there. A uh, reminder, if the people who are uh, live at the moment would like to uh, ask questions, uh, there will be an opportunity for that at the end of the talk, uh, or you can actually write it on the live chat whenever, and it will be raised uh, when I'm finished. Good. Introduction. Uh, yes, my name is still Venable Bodhidharma. I haven't changed <laughs> my name. And I'm still staying at Newbury Buddhist Monastery um, because it's the rains retreat here, as I was um, saying uh, with a bit of banter recently. It's the Buddha's stay-at-home order for the monastics during the three months of the rains retreat. So we stay put and we meditate, we practice, um, we study, and we try to reduce um, the workload to the minimum so we can spend a lot of time in solitude, a lot of time by ourselves, a lot of time with our minds, watching our minds, and most importantly, being friends with our own minds. And if we learn to do that, then we can be friends with other minds as well, with the minds of the people around us, with the minds of the animals, with the minds of the devas, with all the minds of all sentient beings. So I'm continuing with the Sila series. So last time we managed to um, go through an overview of what Sila might be, what virtue is. Um, I still prefer the term habit because it's something that kind of makes sense to me and also is used a lot out there in the world. But it's not just any old habit, it's actually developing the wholesome habits that are useful uh, for us and for all other beings as well. And one kind of word that sums up all the virtues and all the precepts uh, in Buddhism is uh, the non-harm, is being harmless. So we are not hurting ourselves or we are not hurting any other beings. So today I would like to focus on the first precept in Buddhism, we have um, the basic five precepts um, that we keep to protect ourselves and to have basically a healthy, happy, wholesome life in this existence. So the question we might ask ourselves is what makes us truly human? What does it mean to be part of humanity? What does it mean to be human? And that's um, something we will be exploring um, in those different precepts over, yeah, quite a quite a time. Uh, I'm doing the second talk now, and uh, I guess it's going to be six altogether with the five precepts and the introduction before. So sila means how we behave, how we are in the world, but it also means how we perceive how we see, how we view the world, and how we view ourselves. So if we are deluded, if we are confused, then of course the thoughts and the actions and the words that are coming from that worldview, from that point, 
um, are not going to be very very helpful. So instead of practicing <laughs> that delusion and confusion, we're trying to practice and develop and cultivate wisdom and understanding. Because if we are coming from that root, then the results will be um, good. So last time I tried to stress, and I hope that's one of the things that people took away from the last talk I gave, is that the virtues are um, the qualities that really make us human. So because we're a human being now, means we have been virtuous in the past. So let's make sure that we cultivate and maintain that virtue. So we are not kind of going to sink down, as in that sutta that I was um, uh, talking about last time with the shipwrecked sailors, so that we maintain that status, that we can uh, gain wisdom and understanding at the same time, and that we carry this virtue into the future, um, in this existence, but also in future existences. Right, so when we talk about the precepts, it's very important that we understand they are guidelines, or they are reflections, as I called it last time uh, when someone asked a question. So a guideline and a reflection is not an absolute must, or it's not a forcing something onto someone. So a guideline and a reflection is something that we consider, that we gain understanding in, and then we do it because we feel it's a good idea, or we at least try it out. And then once we are trying it out, we feel, we try to understand uh, what the effect of it is. So um, I encourage you strongly, and I'm sure that the Buddha would do the same thing as well, to take these things on board, to reflect, uh, but also to try them out. And then when you're trying them out, give it, give it a bit of time, uh, because these things, the wholesome things, often need a little bit longer uh, until they show their effects and their full strength and their full effects. So one of the things that is very important and the other question that I often like to ask myself uh, when we're talking about virtue, sila, habit, character, is how does it feel inside? And it is important that when we want to feel, when we want to listen, we need like a little pause button. We need a little break. We basically need the space where mindfulness, where kindfulness can be wedged in. So that is very, very important. So it is good to slow things down a little bit. It doesn't mean that we have to be walking around like zombies. <laughs> Sometimes that's one of those kind of things that people think, you know, when you're a meditator or when you are a Buddhist or whatever, when you are a serious practitioner, you are just walking around like a zombie. But zombies, they don't feel. <laughs> They're just walking dead, I think. So it just means putting a little bit of a break in there. And it can be quite slight. And what I thought on behalf of my teacher, who usually tells a few jokes, I will be telling and <laughs> telling a joke today as well. It actually was um, Ajahn Brahm's birthday on Friday, so we were all thinking of him here in Newbury, and I'm, I'm sure also across the globe, with lots and lots of gratitude for all the work he has done in over 40 years as a monastic. And uh, he has turned 69 this year. 
So it's going to be around birthday next year. So anyway, one of the jokes that was going around at the time, just before I was leaving to come over here to um, uh, uh, Newbury, was this joke about the snail. And the snail was just crossing the road. And a tortoise came and ran him right over. So it was quite a bad accident, unfortunately. So the ambulance had to arrive and they, they put the snail into the ambulance and, and brought him to the hospital. And, and he had to go into the um, ICU ward. But of course, they, they wanted to make sure he goes into non-COVID ICU ward because, uh, you know, he didn't want to get more problems on top of the problems he already had. He was really out of it. So it was a long operation. And then he was wheeled out after the operation again still in the ICU but and the police was there and while, once he was uh, waking up from um, the, the procedure the police came to investigate what had happened so they came and asked the snail what what happened what happened and the snail said I don't know it happened so fast <laughs> so again you know speed is always one of those kind of things it, it can be relative but again, it just takes a little, little bit of mindfulness, a little bit of even dropping in that question. How does it feel? How does it feel in my body? How does it feel in my mind? And when we do that, we have enough time to use um, mindfulness, uh, sati, which is a word which also means to remember so we got the teachings and uh, one of the teachings is the precepts so we have the precept and if we have enough time to ask ourselves how we feel and then maybe even to reflect upon um, what the precept is what the dhamma is what the teachings are that will give us a little bit of time so Ajahn Brahm often says it's a little bit like a traffic light so you have this traffic light which tells you to stop and to think and to consider for a little while before you just kind of launch into something which might be not that helpful. Okay, uh, but with that simile and with the ambulance that we just talked about before, it is a traffic light and it is important, so we consider it, but there is times, sometimes, where these precepts are that traffic light and we sometimes still go through the traffic light when it is red, if there is a real emergency. So those precepts, very often people understand them as something which is black or white. In most cases, it's hopefully fairly easy to understand what they mean, but there is certain gray areas. And sometimes um, we have to consider kindness and compassion and all the circumstances and then we might um, act a little bit different, differently. So there is a few areas, areas with the precepts that are a bit tricky. So <clears throat> maybe I'll get some tricky questions at the end. We'll see, see what happens there. So let's see what the suttas have to say. Of course, it's all over the suttas, but I've chosen three suttas to um, kind of find bits and pieces from that are relevant to this first precept or actually to all five uh, that are mentioned in there. So the first um, one that I would like to refer to is in the Anguttara Nikaya 8th and it's the number 39 and Ajahn Sujato calls it the overflowing of merit. 
So because we are in the eighth, it means there are eight. So it's the five precepts. And before that is the three refuges. So when we take the three refuges in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha, that's when the virtue is overflowing. So that is that. And then it carries on, this sutta, to say, because these five gifts are great, original, long-standing, traditional and ancient. They are uncorrupted as they have been since the beginning. They are not being corrupted now, nor will they be. Sensible ascetics and Brahmins don't look down on them. What five? So first of all, very, very nice to see it in this way. Again, as I mentioned before, these precepts are not rules in terms of like, you have to do this and if you don't. <laughs> they are gifts. They are something wholesome. They are something nice. So, they are gifts, five gifts. And what is the first gift? Firstly, a noble disciple gives up killing living creatures. By so doing, they give to countless sentient beings the gift of freedom from fear, enmity and ill will, and they themselves also enjoy unlimited freedom from fear, enmity and ill will. Right, so that is the gift that we are giving to all the beings out there, including ourselves. So that's not just for the first precept, but for all the other precepts as well. To go into a little bit more depth, we looked at the Sutta with Chunda, which is Anguttara Nikaya 10, 176, last time as well. And now let's see what it says about the first precept. This one is not talking specifically about the five precepts, but about the um, ten wholesome and unwholesome um, courses of action. So on the unwholesome side, and how is impurity threefold in the body, so the first fold one is the first precept. It's when a certain person kills living creatures. They're violent, they're bloody-handed, a hardened killer, merciless to living beings. So that would be um, if it's not the right way of practicing, which leads us to a bad destination. But opposed to that, um, if it's the positive side of things for the first precept, it goes like this. It's when a certain person gives up killing living creatures. So the restraint. They renounce the rod and the sword. They are scrupulous and kind, living full of compassion for all living beings. And that's one thing that often gets left out. And by now, I guess the people who have uh, seen me giving a few talks that's always what I like to stress the positive part so they are scrupulous and kind living full of compassion for all living beings good and a third sutta reference before we get into kind of the discussion of this is um, the results of misconduct so often the Buddha talks about being able to know um, the danger of things, which makes us more likely to let them go. So in those terms, that is Anguttara Nikaya 8, number 40. So that's just the next one after overflowing merit. And that um, talks about the first precept. 
and then says that if we don't keep the first precept, it will lead us in a bad destination. But it also says here, the minimum result it leads to for a human being is a short lifespan. So when we are taking lives, the causes and conditions that we are sowing is a short life for ourselves. Okay, so very good. We have put that into perspective with the suttas. So we know what we're talking about in terms of the first precept. So we voluntarily take it upon ourselves to abstain from killing or harming any living beings. Now, the way the Buddha teaches very often is that he describes the problem first of all, and then he offers a different solution how we can deal with this. That's the same with the Four Noble Truths, for example, where he says there is suffering, there is a problem. It's like a doctor. You come to the doctor and the doctor says there is a symptom and that symptom has a cause, and then he offers a medication, then he offers a remedy. So I would like to do the same thing um, for this first precept now. For me, it comes into like two domains that are opposed to each other. So it's like two different world views that we can have. So the negative worldview that we are trying to abstain from is this world... <laughs> My V's and W's are not coming very well at the moment. That's what happens to German speakers. So it's about competition and control. So that's the negative side of things. And that's versus this worldview of cooperation and of caring for each other. So I would like to describe both of them a little bit more in detail and how it might happen that we get tangled up in those unwholesome mind states. I would like to first of all mention a quote from um, the Dalai Lama, from His Holiness the Dalai Lama, when he talked about emotions. And then, of course, after those emotions, what follows are words and actions. So when he talked about destructive emotions, he said, destructive emotions are the ones which disturb the calm of the mind. So if you think of it in this way, destructive emotions means you are robbing the calmness, the clearness of the mind. That's a very kind of good definition. And he also said, ultimately, our emotions are the real troublemakers. So in order to understand how they create the trouble, we have to understand those emotions then. And we have to make sure that we don't become our emotions, that we don't let ourselves be carried away by our emotions and that we don't let them become reality. Right, so I usually like to kind of have a little bit of a chain of causes and conditions to understand how these things might grow and how these things might develop and be practiced, even though we don't really want to practice those unwholesome habits. It's the same thing. Whatever you practice, whatever you put your mind towards, whatever you get good at, that's what comes out of your being. And if it's something unwholesome, that's the same process that is happening there. How does it start? One of the 
obvious starting points for me or for the starting points when you look at the teachings is this thing called self-centeredness. This understanding that we think we are the navel of the world, we are the center of the universe. I mean, of course, I can understand it feels that way because when you are conscious and you're trying to ask yourself where does this consciousness come from, you might um, adopt the view that it's coming from in here somewhere and that that is me and that that me has to be protected. But if we are too self-centered, if we are too interested into this idea of what a self might be, then we also develop pride and we de develop arrogance. So we are starting to separate ourselves out from another self, from another being, from another um, point of view, how you could see the world. We have this kind of polarization that starts to happen, where one group starts to hate another group. So pride and arrogance coming from self-centeredness. And then that very often leads to a feeling of superior, superiority, <laughs> the word is, <laughs> or entitlement. We feel because we are somebody, because we have done certain things in our lives or because our parents have passed certain things on to us because we are wearing a certain uniform. I'm wearing the uniform of a Buddhist monk. Does that make me a Buddhist monk? That, that, does that make me a, a pure being? It helps, but it's just a label. And sometimes, as you might have seen, we, we, we take bottles with labels and put other stuff into it. And then a lot of accidents happen because the label outside says something else than what is inside. I was just putting some uh, washing powder in the washing machine or, or liquid washing um, uh, detergent in the washing machine recently. And I smelled it and it just smelled so differently. And I was wondering, is it actually in this bottle what, what should be in this bottle? So these are labels. They can be helpful. They remind us of things, but they not always reflect what is happening inside. So the most important thing is that we grow these things inside, that we purify our minds. We purify our clothes as well, yes, so we don't want to look dirty. <laughs> but as I was saying to one of the, the, the people here doing the recording recently, as a monastic, fortunately we don't have to worry about these things too much because monastic life is not a beauty contest. It's not this kind of competition that's going in, uh, in the world. I have to be the most beautiful. I have to be the most smart. We are just trying to share um, the things that we are exposed with, the things that are inspiring us and hopefully inspiring the lay people around us as well. So, but anyway, if it goes the wrong way, we have a feeling of superiority, superiority and entitlement. And then if that escalates even further, it goes into domination. It goes into control. We feel that we have the power or we should have the power to tell other people what they should do or shouldn't do. And we start to manipulate, we start to control, we start to interfere and we start to dominate. Another thing which happens very often as well is if we have this self-centeredness, if you have this view that um, this self, this body, this mind, this whatever, this brain is the best uh, and something goes wrong then we are very um, reluctant 
to kind of say, oh yeah, I made a mistake. Oh yeah, you know, um, didn't work out. Sorry about that. Then we start to go into pointing fingers, into blaming and shaming and trying to find the mistakes out there somewhere because we are so perfect. It's not possible that we've done anything wrong, isn't it? So we project it outside. And that is very, very, very dangerous if we kind of carry on in that um, uh, way and it escalates because then it will eventually lead to verbal and physical abuse because we start to value ourselves so much and devalue other beings so much that we feel it's okay or we sometimes even feel we should tell them or we have to tell them it's our job um, uh, to to you know be the teacher or to be the leader or to take action to <laughs> make things happen and that can lead to a hardening of that position so it becomes so strong that we have a hatred towards certain beings to certain people to certain views that becomes very 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 strong because again it's a habit that is practiced and it becomes stronger and stronger and stronger and it becomes easier and easier to fall into it and then we can understand how wars can break out um, hopefully we don't have wars in our families or we don't have wars at our schools but sometimes it almost feels like that it's you know it's it's it plays out in a different way but it's still a war that we are waging and what very very often also happens which is very sad but it kind of just leads on from the spiral that I'm trying to describe here is that we justify that we justify this violence that we say these beings they deserve it so that is our problem that we should be aware of and this is the emotion that we shouldn't get carried into war is definitely not a peaceful state and when we are getting carried into those states then we should reflect then we should stop then we should look for those guidelines and those teachings to find a way to get out of them so instead of getting carried out getting carried away we settle back we relax into whatever is there and we get peaceful we calm things down Right, so self-centeredness, pride, arrogance, feeling superior or entitled, domination and control, blaming and shaming, leading to verbal and physical, physical abuse, hatred and war, and then the justification of that. And that, of course, just reinforces the self-centeredness and on and on and on and on it goes. So to give you some examples from my own life, Maybe you've been reflecting on your life and seeing, hmm, when do I do these things? How do they happen? Why do they happen? So as monastics, we are not encouraged to play games. It's one of the things that we are not supposed to do. <laughs> so <laughs> we had this incident years and years ago where uh, people were feeling um, kind of a little bit sad uh, about the monks being all locked into their monastery during the rains retreat not being able to go anywhere and they were asking if they could offer something and they were <laughs> they were asking can we offer some playing cards <laughs> so you don't get bored <laughs> 
we're actually pretty fine. <laughs> we don't need that kind of entertainment. We have different types of entertainment <clears throat> that have to do with the mind and with understanding the mind, experimenting with the mind and purifying the mind. But anyway, uh, even as a monastic, you still have a history, you still have a kind of a past life, so to speak. And in my past life, before I became a monastic, I um, uh, was at a boarding school and one of my friends had a child and I became the godfather of her child. So I do go and see them every year, if I can. This year it didn't work out because of COVID, but if I go and see them when the children were still smaller and even sometimes now, <laughs> it's just what you do. You're at a family home and you sit around a table and you kind of play a game. So the game they are playing there is called Settlers. I don't know if it exists in English as well. I guess it does. It's just a game where you kind of, um, uh, you have um, uh, a playing board and then you can put your streets and houses on that playing board and you get all what you need. You know, you get sheep and you get wood and you get blah, blah, blah. And with those resources, you can build your own empire. And of course, <laughs> the, the aim of the game is to have uh, many, many roads and many, many houses. And if you have um, the biggest amount, you win. So what was interesting for me, I mean, that is just one game that, that we played. There is the, the usual, what is it called? Um, snakes and ladders. I found it very interesting to watch myself playing that game. And especially to watch this um, tendency in a human being that comes from this self-centeredness to want to win to want to be the best in the game, to want to, you know, <laughs> to, uh, yes. And it's just a game. But still, as a monastic, I was hopefully, or I feel I was mindful enough to observe that tendency in me and to feel how bad it actually feels. And, you know, you have to trade those things with each other and you can put a burglar on the board and the burglar goes onto someone else's field and that means they can't get their resources. And it just went against my principles. I know it's just the game, but I felt these are the people I value. These are the people I love. These are the people I cherish. Why would I, even though it's just the game, treat them badly? So that was one kind of thing. And if people would have that mindfulness, if people would have that kindness, that break within themselves to reflect on these things, then they would practice those virtues, even in situations like those. I mean, a game is actually here to prepare you for life. It's here to prepare you for certain situations that you might get into in the future. Why not practice the virtues and wholesome things even in those situations? I remember even as a lay person, there were certain games where you had to, to lie and do this and that, and it just, it felt against my principles. <laughs> I just didn't feel comfortable. Anyway, one, one example. Another example, when I was um, working in Switzerland, I didn't want to uh, go and join the army because that's one of the things you have to do in Switzerland or had to do back then. And I decided to do civil service instead. And one of those services was that I went to a farm, a remote farm in Switzerland up on the mountains and uh, worked there for three months. It was a family uh, with five children and they unfortunately left their father, and eh, no, left, they, uh, they, what is it called? They lost their father, that's what I wanted to say. So in a very difficult situation. So I went up there to help out, 
I actually wanted to become a farmer in the past as a little child. So that's maybe still that conditioning there. So I, I helped them out and, you know, I, I wasn't that knowledgeable, but I tried to do my best and tried to help out. And there was this one situation. They have these big papers that are full of glue and they are fly traps. So you put them in the shed and they have a certain scent that the insects uh, like. So what happens, the flies come, they get stuck on that paper and you get like, oh, I don't know how many. And they're just, you know, buzzing there on that paper and dying. I don't know how many hours it takes them before they actually die. And one day, uh, the lady of the house gave me the job to put that paper in the shed. And I just kind of uh, looked at her. <laughs> she knew I was a Buddhist. She knew I was, um, you know, I was meditating. I was studying Buddhism even back then. <clears throat> and she kind of looked at me. And then she stopped for a moment and thought about it. And she kind of thought, oh, yeah, I understand. But it didn't take very long. And she turned around and said, but they are annoying. <laughs> so that is this kind of attitude that I was describing it's or we are so used to it you know sometimes I really appreciate that he that she spent a little bit of time to think about it but she kind of pulled back into this safety of oh but they're annoying they deserve it <laughs> and then the third one is um, I think we're all familiar with that one as well when people do not do what they are supposed to do or when life doesn't do what it is supposed to do. That is life, yes. But how do we react? How do we... Um, uh, wh what do we do if a situation like that arises? When there is frustration because of things like that, do we let it go so it escalates into anger? It escalates into violence. And it escalates into this notion of getting rid of things. So with those flies, you get rid of the flies, you get rid of the annoying people, you get rid of the, I don't know, the foods you don't like, or the views you don't like in the world. And the problem is when you are starting to get rid of things and you carry on and on and you actually think through what you are doing, that's one way of explaining suicide. You're trying to get rid of yourself in the end. So even, let's say, you are in this world and anything you don't like, you get rid of. <laughs> so there will be less and less people, less and less animals, less and less I don't know what on this planet. And on some stage, it will be just you and your emotions. And you won't like your emotions on some stage, your own emotions. So if you think it through logically, you would have to get rid of yourself as well. I mean, as Ajahn Sumedho said, there is nothing wrong with killing yourself, but do it properly. Kill yourself, your self-centeredness. So we are not killing this being, we're not killing this body, we're not killing this flesh, we're killing the view of being completely self-centered and living in a bubble without being connected to all the beings around us, to all the world around us, to all the different views of other people that they might have. I was writing to my godchild recently and I was saying, for you, you are on the top of the world in Switzerland and I'm at the bottom of the world in Australia. For myself, I'm at the at top of the world and you're at the bottom of the world. So who is right? Who is wrong? <laughs> is there an up and is there a down? 
is it possible that we are both on the surface of the, this world and just perceiving it as being on top? Like Ajahn Chah, when people would be arguing, I think it was Ajahn Chah, and they came and they reported it to him, he would say to one person, you're right, but you're not correct. And he would turn to the other person who would say, you're correct, but you're not right. <laughs> we get so caught up in those views. So please, please try to loosen those. Please try to have understanding, to have compassion, to have tolerance. Anyway, so we described a problem for quite a long time now. <clears throat> I hope I have enough time to describe the solution, which is actually more important. No, it's not more important. It is equally important. Because if we don't understand what the problem is, we can't really solve it. One of the things, again, that I really, really like, one of the quotes that I like from Ajahn Brahm, that really fits in well here, is the quote, if you want to have a good time, be good. So the quote doesn't go, if you want to have a good time, don't be bad. <laughs> it, it says, be good. And that is this understanding of replacing things. Not just abstaining from things, but replacing them with the positive. So if we want to think of this as a simile, I like to think of it as preparing the ground. The ground where we plant the seed of goodness, where we plant this seed of being truly human, of humanity, and where we let it develop and where we let it grow. Two things that really come to mind for me are the words of safety and are the words of refuge. So the gift that we are giving of harmlessness creates safety and creates refuge. And that's one of the things that I reflect upon often here. We came to a beautiful spot in Newbury where we built some buildings, but there were animals before. There were wild animals before, and they are still there. I had three wombats <laughs> going past my kuti yesterday. And if we make sure that those beings feel safe, that they feel they still have a refuge, they still have a sanctuary, and we become part of their sanctuary, then we can live together in harmony. Then we can live together in peace. So when I'm walking down the road and I see a group of kangaroos, I don't start running towards them. I try to slow down. I try to um, have my mind as peaceful as possible to try to, to, to show them respect because we are sharing this land. We are sharing this property. We are sharing this world together. I'm not here to wage war or to destroy them. I'm here to enjoy their company and to fit into what nature is doing. So that's the opposite. So that's what we are trying to um, create. And then if you take uh, the, the statement of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, so constructive emotions, therefore, would be the ones which lead to the calming of the mind, which lead to peace and which lead to understanding. Samatha vipassana. A bit of understanding leads to a bit of peace. A bit of peace leads to a bit of understanding, and they support each other. It's like an animal or like a human being with two feet going forward step by step. I often like to talk about fun foundation virtues in that respect as well, and they fit into this pre preparation of the ground. I'll just read them out and let you kind of consider them, savor them, or let them drop into your mind and just see what comes up for you. 
humility, sincerity, openness, courage, truthfulness, integrity, accountability, and faith. And that faith and all those foundation virtues, if they're developed, they will lead to trust, they will lead to confidence, and they will lead to commitment. So once you have an understanding why you're doing, uh, practicing the precept, you will develop a certain commitment towards them. You want to keep them. You want to uphold them. You value them. Right, so if we have the positive cycle now to go through, I like to start with humanity or humility. Humility, I found out in an article, has to do with the word humus, which is soil, which is ground, and that's why I like the simile that I described before. It's the preparation of the ground. So you need this fertile ground to put the seed of goodness into so it can grow. So if we have humility, that might mean just being able, like myself, when it's still dark and it's not as foggy as it's now. <laughs> I, I, could, I hardly couldn't find my kuti yesterday. It was so hard to go through the fog, even with a torch. So when you come out and it's clear and it's nighttime and there is not much light pollution, you come out and you see the stars. You see this huge universe that we are part of. That makes you feel humble, doesn't it? It's not this bodhi-centered view anymore, <laughs> this <laughs> self-centered view. It's all my world and what's happening around me. I am this speck on another blue speck in space with so many stars and solar systems that are light years, millions of light years away. Hopefully that helps us to be open and to feel connected, to understand that my consciousness that is perceiving all these things, or the consciousness that is perceiving all these things, the stream of consciousness, is happening in many other beings as well. And we are all interconnected. We can all work together. And that will give us that connectedness and that openness, and hopefully also awe. You are in awe. It's awesome to see the stars out there. We were burning some wood recently as well, because we had to big piles of wood. It's awesome to just sit or stand next to that huge fire burning away, watching the coals, feeling the cold and the warmth, being part of nature, being part of the elements, having awe, having respect. That's what I was talking about uh, the animals before, and this respect, please have it to other human beings as well, to all sentient beings. And when we have awe and respect, we stop, we think, we change our perspective, we open up to receive uh, different people's views as well, and we start to be open for tolerance. We start to be open for fairness, so that we all share the resources we have on this planet, that we share our duties, that we share our knowledge, that we share whatever we have, and try to have it as equally as possible. Of course, we know in this world as well with Black Lives Matter and that have brought this to our minds very clearly and with so many other things on this globe that are happening that it's not really in balance. 
and that we have work to do to balance it out again. When we go in that trajectory, it leads to acceptance. It leads to patience, to um, being able to rest in reality, to be with whatever is, to accept it. It doesn't mean that we always agree with it, but it means we are open enough to listen to someone else, to understand their story, to try and get the whole story behind it, to understand what the causes and conditions are that led a being to behave in a certain way, that believe certain things. And if we are open enough, we can learn a lot. I was an exchange student in New Zealand when I was 18. I went to Wairarapa College in Masterton. And I was amazed to see how different those people um, thought and behaved and what kind of different values they had. Okay, I, I wasn't an exchange student in Japan, for example, from Switzerland, where I would say the cultures are quite different. But I still realized they have grown up differently. Even if you go to a different family here in Victoria or, or in Australia, we have our own language, we have our own understanding, we have our own point of view. And it's so interesting to be exposed to that and then get to know yourself in a different way. When I joined that um, host family, I started to become a part of their family. And because everything was different around me, including the language, I experienced myself in a different way. So that's why I also like to move around a little bit, like coming to Newbury Buddhist Monastery. They're different. It's a different environment. And it gives me the, uh, um, the ability to experiment how I act and react and respond to a different environment. For you guys out there, guys and girls, <laughs> for everyone out there, being on, on the lockdown, of course, it's it's not nice. It's difficult. It's not what we are usually used to. Losing jobs, all these very, very difficult um, things, decisions we might be faced with. But try to see it as a challenge. Try to see it as an experiment to see how you react to these things, how you cope with these things, how you can be in those situations with acceptance, with patience. And if we have all these things, they lead to kindness. They lead to care. So we have enough space. If we are really angry, if we are really frustrated, if we're really carried away by negative emotions, we don't have the space for kindness to arise. And uh, yes, unfortunately, it's a bit of a vicious circle cycle. We, we start sleeping badly, we, we start eating badly, whatever. We, we might tell the other people off and we might feel bad about it. So try to get on, onto this other spiral here, the upward spiral, spiral of, the, of the wholesome states. So kindness and care. Then we also have a love and a belonging. Um, I was reading through the Theragatas. They have a translation here in uh, Newbury of the verses of the elders. Um, there's also the Terigatas for the nuns. And it's amazing how often they describe nature and how beautiful it is to live in nature and live in um, harmony with nature. So we love those beings around us. And we belong. We don't see ourselves as something separate out there. We are a part of and not a part from. And then that leads to that feeling that I was describing before of peace and of safety. 
So those emotions are the ones which lead us back to a peaceful, calm and clear mind. And that will make us more humble, will make us more of a human being, make us um, develop that humility. Right, so humility, humanity leads to openness and connectedness, awe and respect, tolerance and fairness, acceptance and patience, kindness and care, love and belonging, and then peace and safety. So that is the positive part of the first precept. Now, a very nice quote from C.S. Lewis about humility. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. So it doesn't mean that we are taking away the value of who we are. We are a human being like all other human beings as well. We are a sentient being like all other sentient beings as well. So we are just giving equal value to all of them. So it doesn't mean that we have to become a helpless helper and we have to be out there and just help everyone else without helping ourselves or have compassion for everyone else without having compassion for ourselves. It's actually something which breaks down fairly quickly and doesn't really work if we uh, practice it in the wrong way. For the people who have attended some of my retreats before, they will know the acronym for CARE that I often use to describe um, what that might mean in, in life. So the C stands for courage. So whatever situation, whatever feelings, emotions come up, please have the courage to see them to welcome them, to receive them, to connect with them. So you have the courage and you have the connection. So you don't push it away. You don't want to get rid of it because if you do that, then we are already in the negative spiral there. So that's the C. The A stands for acknowledgement and for acceptance. We've talked about this before, acceptance and patience. This view that we might not agree with in another person, it's there. <laughs> if we wish it away, it doesn't mean it will disappear. So we accept that it exists in the world. We accept that there is suffering. We acknowledge this um, life is not just a piece of cake and everything is, is just happiness ever, ever after. In this world, we just experience suffering and happiness. So we acknowledge it, we accept it, and we work on, with it. So when we see the problem, we can look for a solution. If we try to push the problem away, we are also pushing away the solution. Next comes the R, and the R stands for resources and reassurance. Very, very important. So if we've seen a problem, we have to find the resources within ourselves, with uh, within our field of friends, uh, within wherever, <laughs> you can find those resources to tap into to get the energy and the strength that you need. And that is the E of care, the energy. And the energy is also what will be empowering yourself. And empowerment is something which is very, very important. So if there are people that are suffering, including ourselves, we need that empowerment. We don't want to become completely dependent on someone else. 
we want to be able to also depend on ourselves and develop these things within ourselves. So one of the nice um, proverbs, apparently from China, I think it is, is if you give a fish to a person, you will feed that person for one day. Which is a good thing to do, but the problem is you have to keep giving a fish every day. <laughs> if you teach a person how to fish, I'm talking about the first precept. <laughs> if you teach a person how to fish, they will be fed for the rest of their lives. So, again, I'm not encouraging you to go fishing, <laughs> because then you would be breaking the first precept. Oh, that's, that's those stories with Ajahn Chah. Uh, of course, a lot of people in the uh, northeast of Thailand would be fishing to, to you know, make their family survive. So... <laughs> when Ajahn Chah was talking to some of those people, he was saying, but, but you guys, you're, you're breaking the five precepts, or you're breaking the first precept. You're killing fish. And you know what they said? They said, no, 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 no. We're not killing the fish. We're just taking them out of the water. They, they die by themselves. <laughs> no. <clears throat> anyway, um, uh, um, uh, humor aside, there is another very nice story. Uh, of uh, um, a man who was fishing for his family and who came to Ajahn Jha exactly with this question and told him, look, I'm breaking the first precept. I'm fishing every day. I'm just doing it to keep my family alive, to have a business and, you know, to, to make a living. What can I do? And Ajahn Jha had a very nice um, kind of uh, answer for him. He told him, I can teach you how to use the herbal medicines of the forest because I've been taught by other one other monk or other monks of the properties of those um, medicinal plants. So he taught that person over a long period of time um, uh, th that knowledge and then that person could shift from fishing to collecting those herbs and he had the livelihood which was more wholesome, which didn't involve killing, so he could move away from that. But very often we have to be very careful with these things. We try to encourage people to go into the right direction and go at their own speed without um, excluding them, without just disagreeing with them view, uh, with their view and, and dismissing them because they're doing some things that might not be um, that helpful and that wholesome. Uh, we all will know that this is a process, that we are all learning on this path and that we will be breaking precepts and uh, that we then reflect we reinstate those precepts and the commitment that we want to keep them and we find creative ways to work with them to um, carry on um, developing in that area. Okay, I hope that gave you a bit of input. Uh, yes, the time is ticking, but I would like to do a little kind of contemplation with you um, to finish off. It's nice not to just talk about these things, but also to feel them. So I encourage you to find a comfortable position to sit in now and to gently close your eyes, to relax, because if you're not relaxed, it's very difficult to be open and to grow. So maybe take a few deep breaths and let your shoulders drop your face and eyes relax. Your neck, 
your chest, your belly. Your arms and legs. Let them be loose, let them be relaxed, let them be at ease. And then I invite you to think of an occasion when you have deeply cared for another being, where you have wished that other being well, where you have protected that being, where you have maybe even saved their lives. Another human being or an animal that you have cared for deeply. And let yourself feel what that does in your mind and body. Just projecting your mind in that direction. Remember a time when you were respected, when you were the recipient, when you were cared for, when you felt safe and protected. completely at ease so you can let down your guards you feel understood you feel seen loved cherished And let's take it to the highest level. Think and imagine that you are the Buddha or a spiritually developed being. You are naturally full of respect, full of acceptance, kindness, understanding, care, love and deep peace. How does that feel? Now, being that being in the world, in your family, with your friends, with all beings, with the animals, with the ghosts, with the heavenly beings, what do you think those other beings think of you? How do they perceive you? Wouldn't they just be thrilled to hang out with you? Wouldn't they be proud of you? Wouldn't they be inspired by you? That's why we keep the precepts. That's why we develop the precepts. That's the direction we're encouraging our minds to go. Okay, you can 
gently open your eyes again. And now comes the difficult part, I guess. <laughs> the questions. <laughs> Let's see how I go. Thank you, Bande, for the wonderful talk. We do have four questions. They are all, they are all very interesting. Uh huh. I'm just a little bit cautious about of the time. Okay. Yes. So now it's ten o six. Just a yep. reminder. All right. I okay. can I can get out of it by giving short questions uh, answers. No. Okay. Go for it. Shoot. Are you ready? Yes. <laughs> okay. Is self masturbation decent or is it an act against your own body? Right. What Buddhist monks say about this? <laughs> yes. Indeed, an interesting question. That would be more the third precept, <laughs> but let's, let's see. Um, even with sexuality, ask yourself, are you harming yourself? Are you harming other beings? It is very, very normal, especially at a young age, that we explore our bodies. And that includes our sexual organs, of course. And th there is nothing intrinsically wrong with that. But one of the problems is with addictions, they suck us in. As I was talking about those emotions that can suck us in, that can carry us away, especially with sensuality, with sexuality, it's a, it can be a very strong drive and it can drive us somewhere where we don't really want to go. So if that is an addiction, a habit, something that kind of draws you into that direction which is unwholesome which makes you stop being together with other people which makes you uh, stop relate healthily to your own body and to other bodies then of course it can be a problem so it, it's it's always what it comes with and you're saying is it harming my body yes that's that's the question you really have to ask yourself but of course with with buddhism and with going deeper into this practice, it becomes less and less, well, I don't know if the word necessary is the wrong word, it becomes less and less um, um, alluding, in, in, uh, it becomes less and less attractive. Because in Buddhism, with the third precept, I especially think of the Samanyapala Sutta, where the Buddha describes the fruits of the holy life, the fruits of this practice. And pleasure is part of this world, but there is so many um, flavors. There is a huge graduation, uh, grading of, of pleasures. So there comes a time where you experience pleasures that are so much more peaceful, calm, fulfilling, that you don't go for those other pleasures anymore. But it, it, it is an experience that most people will be going through, that they touch their bodies in certain ways, that's just part of growing up as a human being. But we are encouraged to move away from that. The simile that Ajahn often gives is like we used to have a cat at our monastery and we have this beautiful buffet of food. And the cat has its little bowl with its cat food. Would anyone right in their mind fight over the food with the cat if there is a buffet of wholesome, beautiful food available? The problem becomes if it's not available. And addictions grow on the fertile soil of this frustration, of suffering, of not being happy. And then you look for anything 
to make you just a little bit happy. And those happinesses are very short-lived and they can overpower that unhappiness. But as the Buddha was saying, we're just borrowing energy. We're just borrowing happiness. If we are in contact with the deeper um, uh, happinesses, they are self-sustaining and they energize us. Yeah, I, I hope that helps. <laughs> Thank you. The next question. Is the precept to abstain from taking life compatible with a non-vegetarian lifestyle? Mm. I get very different answers from different Buddhist sources and mm. I don't have an intuitive answer. Mm. Yeah, that is definitely one of the tricky ones that uh, I was kind of expecting. One of the things we have to realize in the human realm, just to survive, there is a certain amount of suffering which is inflicted on other beings on the planet. So we try to have as much respect, care and love as we can muster. Now it depends on your situation. Say you would be a deva, you don't have to deal with these things because you don't have to eat, you don't have to procreate. You are a being of light, you're a being which doesn't have a body. If you are a human being, you have a choice. You can make a choice. As a uh, layperson, I used to be a vegetarian for a certain time, quite a strict vegetarian, and it felt right to me at that time. So if people are doing that, well done. I encourage you, please do that. But don't be too hard with your views on other people. It's like when vegetarians are cooking for non-vegetarians and they are cooking in a way that there's so much anger put in their food. <laughs> Sometimes we wonder, is it, is it, is it better <laughs> if they if they could, you know, cook with, 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 a, with a different attitude. So you encourage people to move away from the unwholesome things. And of course, with uh, not being a vegetarian, you do inflict harm on other beings. I'm very intrigued by the research that is being done where you can grow meat uh, or where you can have meat that almost tastes like meat. Um, these are kind of ways at the moment in time where we can move away from this. As monastics, as Theravada monastics, we are encouraged to take whatever we are given and to be grateful for whatever we are given, and that includes meat as well. So it is one of those gray areas, but please reflect on it deeply for yourself. One thing that I find important is when we do certain things, that we don't push away the harm it causes, that we are aware of it, that we know the suffering that those beings have to go through, that they have to give their lives for um, for meat um, to be consumed by other beings and then to um, reduce that suffering as much as possible. And if we can take it away from them entirely, if the human race at some stage will move away from eating meat, beautiful. If it will move away from drinking alcohol and be getting addicted and all these things, great. Let's see how far we can go in this human existence. But there is certain limits. Just to mention, if we go to the animal realm, there you don't have a cho choice. You're a lion. You can't just decide, okay, I'm going to have a salad today. <laughs> so we have more leeway to decide these things. And please reflect on it yourself and do the best you can in your circumstance and try to move in a wholesome, wholesome direction. Okay, one more. Ah, four questions. Okay, yes. Next question. Mm -hmm. Is the females are always treated as equal to the males in Buddhism 
unlike Catholic Church. Uh, yes, that is the ideal situation. <laughs> Unfortunately, again, we are in a place at the moment where it's not really equal, um, but we are trying to get as close to it as we can. It's one of those um, things that often comes with 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 culture, with view, with how things have been done. And if there have been habits established over a long period of time, it's sometimes very, very difficult to change these habits. In Buddhism, we are doing pretty well, but there is, of course, always space for improvement. I, I don't want to go into, yeah, that would be a whole talk. And I guess for someone else who is an expert in this area, not for me, but um, yes, we, we try to do our best. Okay, next question. Does a negative act done with a positive intention, for example, to care and defend oneself or others mm. cause bad karma? Yeah, the question is always how we, how we, how we do that. Yes, so the intention is the most important part uh, in the equation always, equation always. But um, yeah, it really depends on the situation. You know, when I was uh, trying to explain to the people in Switzerland, I had to go in front of a committee and tell them why I didn't want to be part of the army. You know, they come with all those conundrums. They say, let's imagine, Mr. Vrtichka, that was my name, you are in a park with your girlfriend and you have a gun and there is a lion and the lion is attacking your girlfriend. What do you do? <laughs> so, you know, so I was trying to explain to them, look, I'm a Buddhist. I have certain principles in life. I'm trying to keep to these principles as best as I can. But there will be situation where, where I'm still a human being and my fuses blow and I might um, behave in a way that is, that is not, not wholesome. That's one, way of the, one part of the story. The other part is if I can somehow protect my girlfriend <laughs> from that lion in that hypothetical situation, I can shoot in the air and hope the lion will run away. I can shoot next to the lion. I can shoot into the leg of the lion, <clears throat> missing my girlfriend, of course. No, you know, th there is always a bit of this kind of wiggle room. And the other thing is you can never prepare yourself for a situation 100%. You can put into place all your best intentions, all your best... Uh, uh, conditioning and then hope that it plays out in the right way and these are really really difficult kind of um, questions that come up of course there is also the questions that come up if someone could have killed Hitler a long long time ago to prevent a lot of other beings from being killed these are those conundrums that uh, are, are very very difficult to answer but um, please try to work on your principles Try to purify your mind. Try to not get into dangerous situations and hang out with the wrong people. And then I hope you will be mostly fine. And if things happen that are really difficult, please also consider that conditioning is part of the story and that um, we all try our best to practice those um, precepts to, our to the best of our abilities. So... Have a pure mind and try to find creative, good ways to use your pure mind without doing unwholesome things to solve the situation, if you can. <laughs> okay, long-winded answer. Yes, please, yeah, one more. One last question. 
as a Buddhist, how to face the discrimination shown by parents between son and daughter? Oh, okay. Uh, again, as Buddhists, yes. Um, the discrimination be between sons and daughters towards you or... Okay, discrimination. Um, well, um, as practicing Buddhists, we practice metta. And metta is the concept and the practice and then the emotion and the reality <laughs> at the end of unconditional love. And unconditional love just shares love unconditionally, like the sun shines on everything, not judging it this way or that way. So may all beings be happy and well. May my sons and my daughters, I don't have any in this lifetime, but anyway, <laughs> be happy and well. May all people, whatever sexual orientation they might have, be happy and well. There were people that came and asked Ajahn Brahm and said, oh, Ajahn, Ajahn, my son is gay. What shall I do? How shall I relate? And, and Ajahn said, don't you know the practice of metta? May all beings be happy and well. I know it's, it's a concept in the beginning, but it is an inspiration to think about it and to develop it and to bring your heart and your mind and your emotions closer and closer to that. If there are cultural barriers, if there are things, even cultures in a workplace or uh, wherever you go, it is helpful to unearth those cultures and try to, to heal them, try to rectify them, try to um, have this interconnectedness and to try to bring us all on a, on a uh, plane, what is it called? On an even playing field, I think it's called. <laughs> Yes, so these are riddles, these are difficult um, situations, but please practice the precepts and let them seep into your being and then flow out into the world. And if we do practice them, if we carry on practicing them, they will eventually change our world. So if we have a mind which is pure, which is deva-like, we will manifest in a deva-loka later. If we have a mind which is pure, which is kind and compassionate, we will um, manifest in a world, we will manifest in a community with other beings that are very, very similar. But in this world, we will always be part of the whole world. And the whole world has, you know, so many different beings with different views, with different ways of living who have come from different you know, destinations from different conditionings from different families. So our task is to be tolerant and to be understanding, but to still keep to our own values and practice them, not let them go uh, um, when we engage with other beings that might be doing things that we don't consider as, as correct, as wholesome, as right. Okay, I hope that is a bit of food for thought. hope I could... Uh, more or less answer the questions and give you some input to think about the first precept of not killing, not harming um, any other living beings, but um, being respectful and deeply caring for them. Okay, let's finish off with paying respects to the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. Aha, uh -huh, yes, sure. Uh, there will be a meditation.
guided by these five khandhas here. Um, I don't know what we're going to do yet, but we have a meditation at 7.30 in the evening uh, if you want to tune in or um, yeah, uh, listen to it later. It will be available on YouTube. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs>